First, I think just through my experience a little bit, working with larger and smaller organizations, I think while we often think that the larger organizations are more equipped to build out these programs, really the smaller organizations may be more equipped, right? For instance, Jarvis, the engineering person can sit right next to him. The procurement person, they go to lunch together. The finance people, they're on the same committee together. So you interact a little bit more at the smaller level, which you're able to, because I always say for me, I felt like I always had to learn the work, right? I had to understand the work. So I was able to understand the work because I would go to lunch with our green infrastructure program manager, right? <laughs> so we would talk about green infrastructure. I would get a beer with the pipeline guy. So I, so I was able to learn more about the system and about the work in a small organization because I had better connection. We're at a large organization. The procurement team might be on the 15th floor. The engineering team might be on the 20th floor and you need a special key card to get up there, right? Or, and then your finance team might be in a whole different location. So you're not really interacting with them as much where a smaller organization with even less spend, you're able to make more of an impact rather than a larger organization where if you set a 10% goal on an organization that's making a billion dollars of revenue a year, it doesn't necessarily move the needle as much as it would at a smaller organization. So I think a lot of times our small organizations are more equipped to build out these programs and build the foundation and build the capacity, like Jarvis mentioned, that's needed in an effort to then help propel these smaller businesses so that they can grow and start to do business with some of the larger organizations. I learned the term supplier diversity from Tremaine Terry several years ago, and although I understood the essence of the idea, it took time, as in years, for me to fully grasp the reach of such an initiative. More recently, I had an opportunity to do some consulting work with Capital Region Water in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or CRW as it's referred to in this episode. This is where Tremaine first evolved his ideas as supplier diversity. So I arranged to meet his successor. Jarvis Brown. My work with Capital Region Water enabled me to better understand the depth and breadth of their diversity initiatives. Today, Tremaine and Jarvis are with us to talk about what they do and why it makes sense from every angle, including business, community, economics, sustainability, and social governance. If you are like me, you may question where the path to diversity begins. This episode will change that. If you have a desire to leverage diversity, you will come away from this episode with ideas and a sense that this is a way to go. Tremaine Terry and Jarvis Brown are innovating in a space that has been dominated by regulation. They reveal the power of choice. Not only is it necessary for economic growth, it is vital to our communal and social well-being that they were given an opportunity by Capital Region Water to organically grow this initiative in the community is remarkable. Check out the show notes for more information and subscribe to Pioneering Change Newsletter for links to bonus videos that dive a little deeper. Thanks for being here. Now off we go. 
Tremaine, you and I began a conversation several years ago now. The pandemic is in there, it was pre-pandemic, and I was fascinated by the way you explained what you did and what your ideas were about supplier diversity. I had never been exposed to that before, and I want the listeners today to hear it in the, with the same freshness. And so I, I want to come at it from this perspective that people have not really maybe thought about this idea. And also, we're going to start with some opening questions for both of you. And then, Jermaine, I'd like you to talk about the genesis of, pro of the program. And because talking with Jarvis, I have an idea that he really stepped in and evolved the program and has his own perspectives. I think that's important for people to hear how we can look through a different lens. And then we will come back and talk more specifically about the business models that are possible if you want to develop a program like this in your organization. So I'd like to start out uh, with the question, what values drive diversity business initiatives in your mind? That's interesting, right? I think you can look at it from a couple of different ways. The social side of things, right? It's the right thing to do. We say it's the right thing to do. If you're an organization, you, you look to have diversity in your workforce, right? That's a given. If you are providing some level of goods or services, quite naturally, you want a diverse customer base, right? You want to be able to reach more people. So naturally, you should also want a diverse supply chain or a diverse list of contractors. If diversity is important in your workforce and diversity is important in your customer base, Diversity should be equally as important in your supply chain or your contractor base as well. So that's the social side of things. But then also from a business perspective, when you have diverse teams, you have more diverse and often better project outcomes. So if you're looking to improve or expand or grow your organization, having a diverse perspective can help you do that. So you're not necessarily boxed into one way or one approach or one set of thinking or values, et cetera. So diversity makes sense socially and it makes sense business-wise as well. Yeah. And we're going to get into some of the ways in which that takes place and also maybe peel away some of the layers. Jarvis, maybe you'd like to expand on that question of values that drive diversity. Sure. I think Tremaine really did hit two very important points where there's the social aspect of business diversity, and then you have the business side of, of business diversity, that having that type of diversity really is just not only good for those businesses, but also for the people in the community. The fact that we have, we would have such a diverse pool actually directly impacts the type of prices that we get. So by not having this one entity in charge of everything, and ha but having a diverse pool would definitely translate into us being able to have better pricing. The social aspect of that, I typically say that's one of the biggest pieces of that, because if you're in a community, I definitely would want to see the people in that community benefit from that. So if you're a business doing business in the community, I want that 
workforce, that pool to reflect that community. Yes. And I did get that from you, Jarvis, when we talked that there, there was this real relationship basis for the program, the relationships with the community, which are so vital in, in so many ways that for both business and government and nonprofits and so forth. So I appreciate that. And I want to, in this next opening question, just get at what anyone knows that has tried to explore this idea of implementing a diversity policy of any kind, that there is a difference between a policy that's written and a policy that is in action. It's a big gap. And I wonder if you could talk about the difference and maybe even a few words right off the bat about some of the reasons why there's such a gap between these two. Yeah. That, that is one of the things that I can say about Capital Region Water that I'm really proud of is the policy and action. The policy as written pieces, what our disadvantaged business have historically had complaints about, have not trusted, is the policy on paper that no one sees, the policy that it's there, but no one knows what it really says. You don't have anyone to enforce it. You don't know what the structure is behind the policy, and you don't have anyone to revisit the policy. That's just the policy on paper. It's not really clear what the metrics are. It's not really clear what the goals are, how you measure them. And so it's nothing more than someone, you know, just went through the steps, really, of creating policy that is just a policy that is sitting there. The policy in action, I would say, the best example that I have is actually in the position I am as the business diversity program manager here at Capital Region Water is the policy that's enforced, the policy that's been adopted, and is really, I would say, organizational that's ingrained in everything that we do. And I don't want to, I'm not going to take up at all, but I'm sure Tremaine can really add to the policy in action. And I'm sure we'll get really, I'll get to talk more about what that looks like from from the perspective of the position that I'm in. Absolutely. And it really is the million dollar question today is exactly how mm. you do this. Tremaine, you can maybe begin to some explanation of that model and both of you can weigh in on, on that, yeah. what that policy in action looks like. Yeah, it takes, number one, it takes commitment, right? And a lot of folks, they talk about top-down commitment, which is very important, right? You need the commitment from your leadership but also commitment from the middle, the, the middle management. They're the ones that are often directly in communication with your contractors, right? They're the ones who are reviewing RFPs and making decisions and evaluating prices and things of that sort. So you need that commitment as well, because a lot of times your leaders, they're not in those roles. So you need commitment across the organization, like Jarvis already stated. And then, but before you get to that commitment, you need a program, you need a plan, you need to implement that, that, that plan. And then you have to work it every single day. It's it, when you're trying to change culture, when you're trying to change behavior, it doesn't happen organically, unfortunately. So you have to work it every day. There's people that are going to be uncomfortable because you're disrupting a system that worked for them for so long. Again, when you're talking dollars and cents, you're disrupting the system that worked for a group for so long. So they're going to be uncomfortable. They're going to be resistant. 
But again, you just have to keep working at it. You have to set goals that you can meet. You have to manage expectation. And oftentimes I'll say it, you're, you're disliked by everyone, right? You're disliked by the folks that you're disrupting because they don't want change. And then you're also disliked by the folks that are trying to, that's been waiting for so long to get these opportunities because it's not happening fast enough. So that's what the policy and action looks like to me. Just really being an agent of change and really being able to manage expectations and have tough skin and roll with the punches. And I say it all the time. I see more losses than I see wins, right? Because you're constantly fighting all of these battles and all these fronts. But at the end of the day, when I'm able to sit back and reflect and I'm able to tell the story of a contractor that got an opportunity and they're still working a job, that's what allows me to be comfortable with the work that, that we do. Yeah. Shemaine, we're going to get to your story in just one minute. And I think that it's important to reiterate that you were the first. So I can imagine that there was some real disruption. But Jarvis explained to me, and he did a great job. And I want to just see if he can do this for our listeners. <laughs> just the structure. like I'm sure the listeners are thinking, so what are you talking about? What exactly is being disrupted? And what is it that you're trying to do there? Can you give us a short like of what it is that you're doing with your diversity initiative. Okay. Our diversity initiative is really centered around construction. Our plan applies to construction, but we have also branched out into professional services. And so I will try to make this, like you said, is just our structure is this, is that we're interrupting our prime contractors. We're saying that we want 15% minority participation on our projects and 5% woman-owned business participation on a project. What we're disrupting is saying that you cannot just use who you've been using and bring individuals from outside of the city to participate on our projects that we want to do our best to keep it local and meet our, our participation thresholds as they are set. I can go into what the process looks like for bidding. All of our construction projects are publicly bid. We use a platform called PenBid to bid our projects. And from that point on, there's a series of steps that goes into evaluating our bids and making sure that they are responsive and they meet the goals of the business diversity program here at CRW. Okay. Thank you. That was beautiful. And again, I, the whole point of this episode is to convey why that brings about so much value, but we're going to walk it forward. So Shemaine, take us back to what it was like to actually start this program and how was the role conceived or did you have to say, I'm going to have to really lay down like what this role is that I'm fulfilling? Yeah, the latter, right? I felt like I had to really lay down what this role was going to be. I, when I went to Capital Region Water, I was working in community outreach, although my background was in business with supplier diversity. It just wasn't many programs around. I worked for minority-owned business. And we pursued opportunities. So I had a general understanding and it was always something that was of interest to me. When the role at CRW opened up, I don't, I don't want to say it this way, but I felt like I was the most qualified person for the position inside the organization or outside the organization, because that's what I knew, diverse business participation. When it started, no one else had a program. Simply put, between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, there weren't any other programs and there still aren't many 
to this day, although you are starting to see more. So there wasn't really a model that we could lean. For me, I was fortunate enough to have the support of the organization. So the organization, again, from the leadership to management and throughout daily operations, they all supported the initiative, the board of directors, everyone supported it. So it was almost impossible to fail, but there were some hard times. We had people protesting. We had folks that were just upset because it wasn't moving fast enough. And so there was a lot of learning. There was a lot of hand-holding that needed to take place to build up our suppliers, build up our contractors. And then, like I said earlier, on the other side, the disruption. You had outfits that historically just got all of the work. And you're, if you're looking at 20%, that's, that makes an impact to the bottom line. But it's just that disruption on the other end and, and folks filling out paperwork without putting much effort into it. You get paperwork in it and you could tell it's just more of the same for them because they didn't think that we were necessarily serious about the program until we had to start sending stuff back. Those early days, it was, it was rough and there was a lot of eyes on CRW locally to see how we got through it. And again, for me, I was fortunate enough to have organizational support. I was fortunate enough to have really good relationships in the community. And I was fortunate enough to build some good relationships with prime contractors who were committed. And that made it, that really made it work. It really took all three of those elements, the organization, the primes, and some of the subcontractors to make it work. So the prime contractors came around for the most part, you would they, say. They did. And it was a select few that led the way. So it was, and I don't know how different it is now, but it was a select few that led the way and some of the other primes started to get on board because they wanted to win the work. It was, you, you had to do it. So yeah, those prime contractors, when they started to come around, it made it a lot, a lot easier to make those connections. I had the opportunity to work recently with CRW on a compensation program and diversity manager is one of the positions that we looked at. And in all the survey organizations, I don't think we had any other responses on diversity manager, which makes me think that you don't have many role models. I yeah. don't know if there were some other organizations that you looked to when you began. No, unfortunately. Again, it wasn't much out there. You had some programs in Philadelphia that I looked at. The Port, the Port Authority of Philadelphia had a program that I looked at and I reached out to those folks. And then just the, the diverse business organizations, such as the Eastern Minority Supplier Development Council and the Women's Business Enterprise Council, leaning on those organizations to help guide the way. But there wasn't many programs out there. Now, after COVID-19 and after George Floyd, more utilities started to build out programs. But back in 2017, there wasn't much. And so I think a lot of people were looking at us to be that pioneer, to, to make that path and so that they can see what it looks like. Well, I know you, you do consulting work, Tremaine, and so you have to be, a, and I can speak as a consultant this way, that in that role, you have to be like ready for that resistance. It's so built in organizations, no matter what you're trying to change. And I really, it's to applaud you both and Capital Region Water. So. I, I want to just ask you, this is really for both of you, thinking about this role 
And maybe, Tremaine, you could speak generally in the industry, like if you could imagine how this role might become more well understood and accepted in the community, not just the community, just in general for business in 10 years. And Jarvis, you might think about your own role in the next five to 10 years and how it might change. And Tremaine, maybe if you want to speak a little first and then... We'll go back to Jarvis. I see the, that's an interesting question. I think about that often, what the role will look like. There's a lot going on now that we have to really consider. You have the ruling on affirmative action, which could ultimately impact the work that we're doing. There's, I think there's some solutions around it, but I think you have to look at the role as part of like sustainability. So you have organizations that are adopting environmental and social governance programs or ESG programs. So you have to look at the role in the same lens or same capacity that you're looking at that type of work. Maybe the role evolves into a more strategic sourcing role where they're looking at diversity and environmental and social governance and a wide range of, of other topics that organizations are now trying to tackle. So I could see the role evolving into something like that and just making sure that it continues to be included and not pushed out or left out because of the impact that, that supplier diversity has. Capital Region Water, as well as a lot of other organizations, they're experiencing a high rate of IREs and folks that are getting out of these lines of business through your supplier diversity programs. It can be an opportunity to directly engage a group of or community or a group of people who historically haven't done this work, right? And we're going to need them because infrastructure improvements across the country are out of demand. So what better way to address that than with a workforce and a, a contractor force that is literally right here waiting and wanting that opportunity? Jarvis, how would you add to that? Wow. <laughs> when you said that was a, that's a really say my role in the next five to 10 years, it's one of those things where I see capital region border really is just one of the many tools that, you know, in the toolbox for increasing diverse businesses and being able to employ those within our area and around. I would hope that there would be more, I would say, collaboration over these years as as the years go by, there'd be more collaboration with businesses in this area to whereas we are, we'll be able to collaborate off of, you know, on projects or more resource sharing. Tremaine started off by saying there wasn't many people that could help him. I'm hoping over the next five to 10 years that changes. I was able to be successful because I was able to reach back to Tremaine. So we need more businesses to be able to, to pick up this fight and be involved, that we have more policies and action than we have policies that are just sitting somewhere. And that is, that's actually how I see it. We need to have more policies and action. We need to have more individuals that can count on people like myself and Tremaine for help and for expand. And that it's only to expand our resource. So that's really how I see the role. This program was adopted in 2017. And we still have a ways to go just administratively, internally to 
make sure that the program remains solid and we take steps to just keep strengthening and strengthening the program. So whether it's the primes we're working on, there's always something to do internally. And that's how I, that's how I see this moving forward. Yes. I think of the word networked. And I think of in Jarvis in particular, the conversations we had that you are particularly good at linking the prime contractors to viable businesses that are very talented, but maybe under the radar because they don't have appropriate access to how to get the jobs that are available in the community. And when Tremaine talks about sustainability, that's the big word in local government today. And if we want sustainable communities, we have to think through all of the elements of the community that are going to help us remain viable, thriving. And so there's just a lot here to think about. And I'd like to stay with Jarvis and talk a little bit about what it means to build the relationships and trust with the community. And again, for our listeners, being very specific about how does it help Capital Region Water and how does it help those minority businesses when you bring them together? A question. If you don't have the trust or if you're not doing any what I call capacity building, if I'm not doing any outreach, if I'm not letting businesses know about the opportunities that we have, they have to be able to trust that they can participate. They have to be able to know that you're going to be an advocate for them. Without any outreach, some of them don't know where our projects are big, the steps that they need to take to be able to participate with the prime. And you have to be a liaison between the primes and the community. It means a lot. We have a five-year report that's out. And, and what that says is, and I was able to get some minority-owned locally business in that. And what I had to do to get them to, to trust me was to be available, give them, invite them to our pre-bid meetings, invite them to our pre-construction meetings. It means a lot when they can have information that they themselves historically thought was only given to prime contractors. This meeting is only for prime. I was on a meeting yesterday and they say, we can't get contact information. We don't know who's on the pre-bid meeting. How is that possible? That should be a part of the minutes. We should be able to know what minority-owned business, that's one of our, can be one of the first points of networking. So that's what it means for minority businesses is that they feel like they, they know that they have a voice and an extra seat at the table that's working on their behalf. And that has been crucial to the success of our business diversity program. If they can't trust you, no one's going to bid on projects or they're not going to want to participate or they're not want to what they call submit their number. I get phone calls all the time saying, hey, I submitted with X prime. You know, what happened with this? Or I'll call them after awards sometimes and say, I looked at your pricing. I do anything I can to guide them so that they can be successful. And that's how these programs work is relationships are huge for the success of these types of programs. And on the side of CRW, and I brought this up in our earlier talk, Jarvis, and maybe it's not central to your thinking, but as an outsider, I think it seems central to local governments that might be listening to this episode. 
I think that trust building goes a long way if things go south after an, I don't know, a bad weather event. There's something along the lines that is out of the control of the local government that happens. Those trust relationships be, that are in the community because you have an active program of working and partnering with the community, not only does it improve your responsiveness to that event, it can build off of goodwill that has built up over those years in relationships. So I just want to highlight that. And does that, I see Jermaine nodding his head. And Jarvis, does that resonate with you as well? Yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. You said so many interesting things in our earlier talk, Jarvis, and I don't want to miss out on the reference you made to extractive businesses. And I think about this. It's something that I have always felt. My family came from West Virginia. If there's a mm -hmm. prime example of a, a state that suffered from extractive businesses. Right. But I think in this way you use it here is appropriate to the issue of sustainability, to the issue of just community economic viability. Can you explain what is the difference between an extractive business versus one that's part of the community? Wow. Yes. So when we were talking, we did, we spoke about the, the extractive market and what that, to me, what that means is this, those businesses that only want to take from the community and really don't want to reinvest back into the community. In this area of supplier diversity, sometimes I'm still blown away at how people think about this particular topic. It's only right that people want to work where they live, that people want to see the money that they spend reinvested back into their community. And so a business that I would say that is purely extractive is one that only seeks, number one, they don't see this community as their That's one. That's how I see it. The other part is then they take their money from their community and they go to another community to spend their money. When I was young, it was go down to X store and get your meat. It wasn't that we jumped in the car and we went to a big retailer. The price at the smaller business was actually for that same meat was actually cheaper in my community. And in a shop market, you say, I'm going to make my money and I'm going to go I'm going to skip over the small business in the community and go right to the big retail market. That doesn't do anything for our community because then you, you see a shift in a community where none of the businesses are reflected, reflective of the demographic of the community. The prices are higher and you just have so many other things that result in not reinvesting back in our community. And so this supplier diversity and being able to participate on the construction contracts that are happening right in your backyard is important. It's important that we employ the people who we serve in our community. When I go to other communities, the people in the streets look like the people from that community, and it should be no different here in Harrisburg. So that's what I mean by making sure we don't create this, this extractive market where we're purely here to, to reap profit and then take our money somewhere else without the citizens and the small businesses being able to benefit. So that's my long answer for that. I'm very passionate about that. I love coffee shops. So I never skip the mom and pop coffee shop for the yep. bigger coffee. That's right. We met in a coffee shop that you knew right. was giving back to the community. I love that. But it just shifts the whole lens in terms of what we're talking about here. And I think that for the businesses 
that are participating in your program, and they're going, we never thought about this. Hey, so I, I want to go back to- Nancy, can, can, I, yeah, can I jump in on there real quick? Because Jarvis, I mean, I, yeah, I, I lit up what he was, the way he explained that. And he started, the question before was about trust, right? And then the follow-up was about the extractive businesses. And for me, right, if you're a municipality, if you're a local government, if you're an organization, you, a lot of times the community that you serve, they don't trust you, right? They don't trust, a lot of times they don't trust local government. They don't trust some, some forms of, or some levels of healthcare. There's, all, there's a, an issue with trust that we have every day, right? And what better way to, to solve that issue by utilizing people who work and live in that community, right? So for instance, I'll use CRW as an example. What better way to gain trust with their customers, right? What better way to gain trust with their customers when their person next door, their next door neighbor either works for the organization or has a contract with the organization. So when that customer is mad because their water pressure is down or they're mad because they're, there's flooding in the street because of a heavy rainstorm and they want to point the finger at an organization like CRW and their neighbor who works there or their neighbor who has a contract there comes out on behalf of CRW and says, no, we're doing this and this to invest, to make sure that these things don't happen. I mean, that it, to me, it's almost a no brainer if you're a local municipality or a local government organization to utilize the resources that are literally right down the street from you to build trust, to have economic impact, to do all of those things that Jarvis mentioned. Yeah. It really requires us to think beyond some of the very basic principles. We're actually here talking about another layer. It's a deeper, more enduring layer. But it's a business partnership as opposed to, I'm just going to go in and do a job and get paid. We're actually developing partnerships. It's a different quality of participation. And the other thing that I just don't want to miss is, in, and we can go now to some of Tremaine's ideas about business models, that we're also talking about access and we're talking about the value that comes from having a more diverse foundation. You and I began our conversation several years ago about, we always say diverse perspectives. It's too overused. It's a true, it's a depth in talent and it's a depth in insights. And I'm going to let you say more. So how this model might be adapted for organizations that are not CRW from your perspective, Tremaine? First, I think just through my experience a little bit, working with larger and smaller organizations. I think while we often think that the larger organizations are more equipped to build out these programs, really the smaller organizations may be more equipped, right? For instance, Jarvis, the engineering person can sit right next to him. The procurement person, they go to lunch together. The finance people, they're on the same committee together. So you interact a little bit more at the smaller level, which you're able to, because I always say for me, 
I felt like I always had to learn the work, right? I had to understand the work. So I was able to understand the work because I would go to lunch with our green infrastructure program manager, right? <laughs> so we would talk about green infrastructure. I would get a beer with the pipeline guy. So I, so I was able to learn more about the system and about the work in a small organization because I had better connection. We're at a large organization. The procurement team might be on the 15th floor. And the engineering team might be on the 20th floor. And you need a special key card to get up there, right? Or, and then your finance team might be in a whole different location. So you're not really interacting with them as much. Where a smaller organization with even less spend, you're able to make more of an impact rather than a larger organization where if you set a 10% goal on an organization that's making a billion dollars of revenue a year, it, it doesn't necessarily move the needle as much as it would at a smaller organization. So I think a lot of times our smaller organizations are more equipped to build out these programs and build the foundation and build the capacity, like Jarvis mentioned, that's needed in an effort to then help propel these smaller businesses so that they can grow and start to do business with some of the larger organizations. I'm thinking about how a smaller organization might fulfill this goal. And it may be, for instance, that there's somebody already doing outreach, or maybe they're thinking about just a more general outreach. Is it a role that could be part of a larger role or should it model organizations, people typically wear more than one hat. I think so. At least I, I think so. Because like I said, for me, it helped me because I knew the work. I learned water, drinking water and wastewater. I learned that. I learned gas. I learned electric. So I learned the work. I think you, if you have the right person in place, and the organization is committed and you have all those things that we mentioned earlier, I think it could be a person that, you know, is doing another role. But again, when you're first starting, your attention has to be on it. So you can't necessarily divide your attention. Another option or possibility is if you're bringing in a collective of smaller organizations to build this program, to build like one customized program that applies to a couple of different organizations, whether it's local government or whatever. And then maybe you could have one person oversee the supplier diversity programs for various organizations if it's going to be a uniform program, which is something that I think about all the time, where if you bring different townships or different municipalities or different authorities together and build out one program and then utilize a third party to oversee it all, because it'll be a uniform program where if you're a diverse supplier and you're working with X township, it's not going to be different. When you go to the neighboring township or the, the neighboring municipalities, it'll be the same program, the same expectation, and ran it the exact same way. Yes. And they could learn from one another. And right. I think somebody like yourself, you could come in and audit it is not the word I'm looking for, but you could do a survey. You could do a collaborative process of looking at all the ways in which they engage. I, they engage engineering firms all the time, probably ones that already have relationships with you both. So there is some regional type of organizations. And I think that 
big obstacle in my mind and it is that just initial curiosity, like scratching their heads. Why are we doing this? What is this about? And I do think it's changing. There's getting the light bulb went off in my head. I think it, it will in others when they hear this. It's not that the desire or it goes back to that stated versus plan and action. There's this sort of vague desire. And then you look around you in your who in your community and everybody, you don't see the diversity until somebody like yourself comes in and you begin to engage the questions and you think, oh yeah, we really haven't looked at all of the layers of our community. We just assume the way we've been doing it is it does the job and we don't rock the boat. So I think that desire to, for those who have, an interest in, in, in thinking about all of the things that you've talked about, Tremaine, with sustainability and strategic sourcing and just that community engagement. Both of you are so strong around community engagement and social governance. Those who have just an inkling that they'd like to move in that direction could really use a, a somebody to guide them in terms of what that might look like in their particular, but it can look different. And I guess that's the point too. I want to ask you, it can look different. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think it definitely can look different. I wouldn't want someone who doesn't have a business that doesn't have a lot of capital or to CRW created this position. Everyone doesn't have the means to create a position dedicated to this type of work, that there's always something that can be due when you identify your need or where you want your dollars to go. This program here started off by saying, recognizing that we'll be spending millions on infrastructure they knew exactly what they wanted to go. And that's how the business diversity program is formed. And any business I think can do, I know can do that. Once you realize where you want your money to go, then that intent is what drives your next steps and what it is you want to do. We, we met at the coffee shop, but one of the things that that coffee shop had in it was Vietnamese coffee that came from a small Vietnamese family that had those beans. That's so them selling that for the, over the summer is a benefit to that Vietnamese family. And so it's those types of small actions that can be taken to do the type of work that we're talking about here today. It doesn't take the big corporation or you don't have to be a municipality to get started or to do this. Just becoming more aware and uh, what are some of the types of grassroots efforts, Jarvis? Do you see anything in particular that people can do other than just becoming more aware and knowledgeable about their community? Sure. Spend your money in your community whenever you can. That's first and foremost. That, that stronger together is just not a motto or cliche. We benefit from being able to circulate our dollars within the community. And Tremaine, feel free to, uh, to jump in and offer any other uh, points. Yeah, I think it's that spending your dollars is making that investment because where mm -hmm. you're investing in the physical infrastructure of your community, right? So you also should invest in the human infrastructure in your community as well. So, you know, when you're making those type of investments, those type of commitments, again, it should be centered around your community. And then it's more how you leave things, right? If you're able to leave things improved from where you started or how you found it. So if you're able to, whether it's an organization, a program or a project, 
but you're able to leave it better than how you found it in whatever capacity that is and whatever that means to you, then I think that's what you should set out to do. And that's, again, if I'm able to help one business, one grassroots organization that builds capacity or spreads information or just enlightens, if I'm able to do any of that kind of stuff, then again, I feel satisfied. So I think these programs, they can absolutely look different, but at its core, it has to be intentional and it has to be rooted in improvement. And if that yeah. takes a process. Of yeah, and I think, again, when you look across just our state, you just see across the country, you just see our demographics are changing. Our purchasing power is changing. Even if you're in a community that isn't diverse now, it will be. <laughs> it will be because our country is changing. And you should want that. You should welcome that. You should welcome just a different lens and, and different people from various walks of life into your communities. Again, I think it just makes us better. It makes us stronger. It makes us more aware. If you're in a, if you're in a community that's not diverse right now, start a supplier diversity program and watch <laughs> your community improve and watch the people come after it. And so it's not, I don't necessarily look at it as putting a cart before the horse or whatever, however that same may go. I think it's regardless of how your community looks currently, it's always an opportunity for supplier diversity there. Yeah. Yeah. So we've hit on this point that the uh, common theme here is that the minority owned businesses can make your community stronger. And one of the standout conversations in, that I've had with you over the years, Tremaine, is just the solid business case you can make for that. And in your organizations, you are doing some of that work of making, measuring this. Like these are metrics of responsiveness, metrics of cost, metrics of just being able to get yeah. delivery of outcomes. You've been able to work on some of that in your capacity as diversity yeah. manager. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not, again, supplier diversity doesn't drive up costs and it doesn't negatively impact projects. Actually, it's the opposite. When given the, the right resources and the right opportunities, for instance, pricing, right? If diverse suppliers join consortiums or leverage their spending together, then that can assist with pricing. But it's a matter of just the awareness of it all and, and helping diverse suppliers come together collectively to do some of these things that can help them with pricing or purchasing equipment just to improve or increase their purchasing power. Again, it's one of those things where, hey, you know, how do I get a loan if I don't got a contract, right? Or how do I get a contract if I don't got, so you got to create just the, the environment that allows for these things to, to happen. And you'll see that now pricing is not an issue. Project safety is not an issue if all your contractors are going to, if it's a regulated utility OSHA classes or whatever it might be, then safety is not an issue. Budget and schedule is not an issue, especially if you're working with local contractors, because they live in a the community. They're going to get their own time. They're going to be there. They're going to work the job. So it's not going to be, it doesn't necessarily drive up price with, what's the word I'm looking for, Jarvis, when you set up the project mobility, right? So you're not, it's not going to drive up the price as much because your contractors are right there. They're not coming from a hundred miles away. Like when you really start to look at it and peel back the onion and really look at all these things that people say, how supplier diversity can it negatively impact it's always or it's quite often the opposite 
most times when you look at it. Yeah. No, you convinced me there's a very good, there's a very good case study to, to support this direction. And we would be remiss. We haven't even talked about just the whole recruitment and retention issue that there is in the pipeline, more talented workers through by expanding your base of available workers. And I wondered in closing up here, I have this question, who else is in this space or who else should be in this conversation? I think that the real question is who else should be in this conversation? If we're going to tip the scales and make this diversity initiatives better understood that the way in which they can build up organizations and communities, who should be in that conversation? I think your community is actually a really good starting point. There's a lot that happens before business is actually able to participate on one of our projects. But when you talk to these businesses, one of the things that they may bring up is some of the barriers that they ran into during the process of getting certified or getting insurance or some of the other, just some of the other steps that they would have needed to take before they got to just say capital region order being able to participate. And so it'd be really important for those entities that are involved to be strong in maybe making it easier for businesses to get their licenses, not so much red tape or whether it's due to cost or bureaucracy. One of the things that Tremaine talked about before was that the access, who do I need to, the right people to speak to? Do I have the right phone number? That is an, a whole list of things that needs to happen before businesses become ready, willing, and able to participate on a project. And so it's really important that those entities that are charged with growing businesses and maybe completing the art of the part of the puzzle are doing what they need to do to make that, to make that happen. Yeah. That's an excellent point. I'm thinking of our friend, Charlie White. He talked about that with us and just making those resources available. And that's, again, something local governments can do, can help facilitate helping the smaller businesses get access. Yeah. I think think sometimes with this program and and I'm sure that Jermaine can attest to this, where we have to, we're spending the dollars, we have the infrastructure work, we have the process in place for these projects to be bid, but we also sometimes get charged with the piece where we're trying to grow the business. So we're in charge of the business development piece, we're in charge of the certification piece, then you become in, then they want to put the insurance. And before you know it, the business diversity professional is charged with really acting on the behalf of other agencies, maybe within that community that can really should be helping fill in some of those gaps. And so that's really important with this type of work or making sure, say, okay, is business development, is workforce training. And so before you know it, your a position such as this can take on many forms. And so it's really important. It is extremely important that those other entities that are getting tax dollars or what have you is, is doing what they need to do in their part. Yeah. Like your chambers of commerce, your contractor association, just, I mean, your financialist, local financial institutions, they all have a role to play in this. They all can positively impact because like driver said, we know what some of these barriers are, whether it's insurance some, sometimes or 
access to working capital. Because if you're a small contractor, you got to pay prevailing wage and you're on a 45 day turnaround time for payment. You invoice your prime, the prime invoices the, the project owner. If you're in government, the bureaucracy of writing a check, right? It takes some time. So then that check gets back and then the prime has to process it on their end and then pay the prime, then pay the sub. And then that could take sometimes 45, 60 days. And if you're a small contractor and you have to pay prevailing wage to a few guys, you can run out of money really fast. So access the capital. So our financial institutions, they have a role to play. Just the training associations, they have a role to play. The contractor association, chambers of commerce can really be of help in this thing. So, and so it even goes further than just the local government. There's those other business organizations out there that support that they can all, uh, help make Jarvis's job easier. Cause like you said, he's doing all of that. <laughs> he's helping people find bonds. You should be, they say you should be training and all these different things. And none of it's off, none of it's off the table, but we have to look at this from the aspect that we're all a part of the solution and that no single particular entity should in any way have to carry the full load, period. Well, I hope that listeners will go away at the very least with an understanding that if you look around and you don't see any path to building diversity in your organization or community, that this show is going to change that. And I think second to that, there has to be a desire to really go on that path. And I personally have real hope that there are many out there like myself who've been around a while and maybe haven't understood that path and maybe even more of the young professionals that are growing in their careers that are saying, hey, this is the way to go. And they see it from a... a a viewpoint that is hopeful for going forward. But you two have really made a difference in my own understanding. And I just, I think it's going to be that way for others that hear you. And we'll put in the show notes where they might find you. Tremaine has a link, a LinkedIn site and Jarvis, you can find a Capital Region Water. So we'll have a link there. And I wish you both well and or do you have any, did I miss anything? Did there, is there anything that we, you wanted to say today that maybe we didn't get a chance to talk about? For me, I just know that we, when we said about minority business enterprises, women business enterprises or DB in general, I do, I do want to mention our veteran businesses and our veteran disabled businesses because they also have a voice in this. They also are a part of our supplier diversity. So I didn't want to. And without mentioning our veterans or our LGBTQ community. If there's nothing else, I just, I, I look forward to continuing this conversation. And I, I hope it, it leads to some other work that we can do together. So just on a personal note, it's obviously a pleasure sharing a platform with Jarvis. We go back. Wow. So it's a pleasure sharing a platform with him. And then also Nancy, this has been a long time coming. So thank you for setting this up again. Like you mentioned, we, we talked about this prior to COVID. So I appreciate 
just reaching out, you reaching out and having, you know, me on. And I'm sure Jarvis feels the same. Yes. I'm happy. I'm happy for you. And I'm proud to to be on this show. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tremaine. It's great to be here. So take care of yourselves and I'll be in touch. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, I really appreciate it. All right. See ya. Yeah. Have a great weekend. You too.